<laughs> now that all the kids got downstairs and we're ready to go, I'm excited about this part of Scripture this morning. We're in Titus chapter 3 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand so we can get them right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Titus chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of Titus chapter 3. Great section of scripture, especially dealing with what we see happening in our world today. I think this is, this is a great place to be. Always a great place to be in God's Word, so it doesn't matter where it is. So. All right, Titus chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses. The Apostle Paul, writing to Titus, says, it says starts in verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The title of my study this morning is Living Godly in an Ungodly World. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord God, that as we sit here this morning, it's your desire to speak to our hearts individually, personally, corporately as a church, as a body of believers. And so we thank you for this time. We pray your blessing upon our children downstairs, Lord, as they are being ministered to by the teachers that have volunteered to, to teach them, Lord, anoint their time together as well. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning, upstairs or downstairs, that doesn't have a relationship with you, Lord God, we pray that today they would hear the gospel and turn their lives over to you and, and be saved today. We thank you for this time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the overall theme of the book of Titus, of this letter to Titus from Paul, really would be how to live godly in an ungodly world. Or as Paul might have put it, according to chapter 1, verse 12, how to live godly in an ungodly world full of liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's what it said there. We also live in a culture that exalts sin today and, and despises God. I think our nation is on edge. I feel like we're, we're living in the 1960s all over again with a tragedy that you may have read in the news or heard yesterday of a man driving his car into a crowd of people during a, a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, killing a 32-year-old woman and injuring 19 others. And then we have the threat of all-out nuclear war with North Korea. I'm going, it's deja vu, it's 1960s all over again. So how should we re- respond? Should we stage protests against the forces of evil in our community? Should we organize political parties to try and gain power over the opposition? Well, we've all seen that really doesn't work. The reality is, what our perverted, sinful society needs is the gospel. 
which alone can change human hearts. But how do we gain a hearing for the gospel among people who mock God, among people who, who mock God's people? Paul's answer is we must live godly lives in this evil world, set apart lives. We, we must excel in good works that display God's grace through our lives. You see, the changed life of the believer is the biggest witness we have for Jesus Christ. And the way in which we live our lives will point other sinners to God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I like what we put in the Selah this morning. I, I forgot to put it in my notes. It says, if you are a Christian, you're not a citizen, citizen of this world trying to get to heaven. You are a citizen of heaven making your way through this world from Vance Havner. I love that. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing for us here this morning in chapter 3 is to lay out for us in these first seven verses how to live godly lives in this ungodly world when it comes to our relationship to our government, to our people around us, and to our God. Our three points this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, how to live godly in an ungodly world when it comes to our government. Look at verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now the rulers and the authorities here refer to our government or our state that that rule over us. I like the New Living Translation of this verse. It says, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. Well, when it comes to the government... I found an illustration of one way you could submit to the government. It's, it's a letter that was written uh, called Raising Hogs, and it has to do with our, our very crazy farm subsidies. And the letter goes like this. To the Honorable Secretary of Agriculture, Washington, D.C., Dear Sir, My friend, Dan Hansen, over at Honey Creek, Iowa, received a check for $1,000 for $1, from the government for not raising hogs. So I want to go into the not raising hogs business next year. He goes on. What I want to know is, in your opinion, what is the best kind of farm to not raise hogs on? And what is the best breed of hogs not to raise? I want to be sure that I approach this endeavor in keeping with all government policies. As I see it, the hardest part of the not raising hogs program is keeping an accurate inventory of how many hogs I have not raised. My friend Hanson is very joyful about the future of the business. He has been raising hogs for 20 years or so, and the best he's ever made on them was $422.90 until this year when he got your check for the $1,000 for not raising 50 hogs. If he got $1,000 for not raising 50 hogs, then would I get $2,000 for not raising 100 hogs? I plan to operate on a small scale at first, holding myself to about 4,000 hogs not raised the first year, That would bring in about $80,000. Then I can afford an airplane. Now, another thing. These hogs I will not raise will not eat 100,000 bushels of corn. I understand that the government will also pay people not to raise corn and wheat. Would I qualify for payments for not raising these crops, not to feed my hogs I will not be raising? I want to get started as soon as possible, as this seems to be a good time of the year for the not raising hogs and not planting crops business. Also, I'm giving serious consideration into the not milking cows business, as any information would have, uh, you would have on that endeavor would be greatly appreciated. Also, in view of the fact that I will be totally unemployed, I will be filing for unemployment and food stamps, and wondering how long that process would take. 
Be assured, Mr. Sec- Mr. Secretary, you'll have my vote in the upcoming election, patriotically yours. P.S. Would you please notify me again when you plan to give out the free cheese? Paul tells us in verse 1 here, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. Now, is that what that means? Not exactly. Listen, we are Christians in this world, but we're not of this world. But being a citizen in this world, we still have the responsibilities to the state. Because the best citizens ought to be Christian citizens and believers. Now, while it is true our citizenship is in heaven, according to Philippians 3.20, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, but while we are here on this earth, we ought to apply our Christian faith in practical daily living. Christian people should seek to apply Christian principles in the affairs of the city, in the affairs of our nation. Every believer certainly should use their God-given privileges as citizens to see to it that the best leaders are elected and the best laws are enacted and enforced justly. Now, when we think of godly leaders in scriptures, I mean, uh, there's quite a few. You think of a man like Joseph. Man, Joseph was amazing. Or Daniel. Or the woman like, like, like Esther who were able to exercise spiritual ministries in the midst of pagan governments. So we can see what the Holy Spirit can do through the dedicated believer. I think of Deborah, the only female judge mentioned in the Bible, what God has done. That tells me that we as believers, we need to be involved in in not only selecting godly leaders, but being godly leaders ourselves. We need born-again Christians that would take a step up and get involved in not only our local government, but but bigger than that, beyond. There's definitely a place for born-again believers in politics. Because God has ordained government. In fact, there's three institution, institutions that God has ordained. Uh, God has ordained marriage, number one, and the family. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is, a div- marriage is the divine institution that God has ordained. It's an institution between one man and one woman. And it's a very important institution that we shouldn't be trying to change or redefine it. Rather, we should follow God's design for that relationship. The second divine institution that God has ordained is that of human government. God has ordained human government. Why? Well, because man needs a restraint for sin. Man needs to be under some authority. That's why God has ordained human government. Now, that doesn't mean that all forms of government are godly or that government officers or officials are godly. There are those dictators and those wicked men that are even demonic in their governmental positions and authority. But the institution and the, and the concept of government or men ruling over others is something that God has ordained. So there's the divine institution of marriage. There's the divine uh, institution of government that God has ordained. And then thirdly, God has ordained the institution of the church. Now I believe that the, the start of the church really is in, found in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where God poured out His Holy Spirit into the church. But you see, all three of these things, marriage, the government, the church, God has ordained. And they all have their place and their role, but they're, they're not really to interfere with each other, but rather they're to complement one another. The church and the family work together, but the church is not to try to, 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 over, to rule over the family, but to have influence on the family. And the family is to be a blessing to, and a strengthening to the church. And as well, then the family should be raising godly citizens and godly leaders to be able to, to lead forms of government and in society. Listen, if we have godly marriages, 
then we're going to have godly families. And if we have godly families, then we're going to have godly children. And if we have godly children, then we're going to have a godly society. That's the way it works. And the church needs to be there to giving that influence in the marriage and in the home and in other ways in society. My point is that godly people that, that is that godly people that, that makes their society work well. Which is amazing to me that the world hasn't figured that out or society hasn't figured that out yet. Now, there are a lot of different arguments and facets that we could go into concerning the Christian relationship to government. But the bottom line is God has ordained government and we as believers, according to verse 1 here, we need to be subject to the rulers and the authorities to obey and to be ready for every good work. Peter tells us something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Peter writes, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. What Peter's saying is basically that I should submit, we should submit to the laws of the land. Now when I get out on the highway, I'm supposed to follow the speed limit. I'm supposed to. You know, when, when, uh, when it comes time to pay taxes, I'm supposed to pay taxes. Now you may say, well, I think the tax rate is too high. Well, then vote for someone who's going to lower it. You say, well, the speed limit is too low. Well, then vote for someone who's going to raise it. Until that time, you have to pay taxes and you have to abide by the speed limits. You can't really say, well, I just don't really feel led to pay taxes anymore. I don't like where the government is spending my tax dollars. Well, then get used to a prison ministry because that's where you're going to be heading. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 22, 21. Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He didn't say, well, first see where Caesar is spending your tax dollars before you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. No, he just said, render the things to the Caesar's that are Caesar's and the things that are God that are God's. Which brings us to the next question about our government. What if the government passes a law tomorrow saying we can no longer pray? If they said, it's against the law for you to pray. Do we submit to the higher authorities in that case? Absolutely not. I think of a classic example of this is Daniel, who prayed every day. I mean, he would open up his windows, he'd get down on his knees, he would face Jerusalem, and he would pray every single day. And the enemies hated him. They wanted to get rid of him. He was in that place of influencing to the king, and and they could not find anything scandalous in his life. There was no skeletons in his closet. So they thought, well, the only way to get rid of Daniel is to, to find something concerning him and his God. So they went to the king and got the king to sign this decree that said, essentially, if anyone prays to any God except the king, he's to be arrested and put into prison. Now, Daniel certainly heard about this new law, this crazy law that had been passed. He could have probably justified shutting his window on the day that he was praying and maybe prayed in a different room where someone could not have seen him. Or he could have opened up the windows and and kept his eyes open and, and just prayed with his eyes open and so no one could tell he wasn't praying. He could have rationalized that type of behavior, but Daniel refused. Because to Daniel, that would have meant compromise. And like every other day, he got down on his, opened the windows, got down on his knees, and, and he prayed to God. His enemy saw him and he was arrested. We all, know, we all know the rest of the story, Daniel and the lion's den and how the Lord protected him. My point is that he did what he needed to do because he was submissive to the higher authority than even the king, which is God himself. The king was out of alignment with the will of God. Let's put it a different way. Let's say there's a law tomorrow that says we as Christians can no longer preach the gospel. Do we obey that law? Absolutely not. 
I think of the apostles. Remember, they were arrested for getting the, the message out, preaching the gospel, and the authorities told them, you can no longer do that. And what did they say? We must obey God and not man. Now, this brings up an interesting scenario. We have in our present condition something that is, hasn't happened for a long time, and that is a very real threat of a war between the United States government and the North Korean government. Not a proxy war in some third world country, but a legitimate war between two governments. The threat for war is greater than it's ever been. So what should our Christian response be to this situation? Kim Un-jong has been presented with a plan to attack Guam in mid-August. Mid-August is Tuesday. Tuesday is the 15th. Things are hitting up, heating up big time. There's a real and present danger. Now the first thing I want to say that I thank God that God is in control. Period. Amen. Now, my big concern, though, is that North Korea and Iran have exchanged nuclear technology. See, while everyone's looking at North Korea and what's going on with that, I expect there's going to be some movement in Iran against Israel. And we know that Russia has got an agreement with Iran to defend them, and, and, and they've been providing, you know, uh, missiles and things to Iran. And right now, Russia is actually planning on holding military exercises on the borders of the Baltic states starting in the first part of September with an estimated of 60 to 100,000 troops participating. And I also read yesterday that some 60,000 Russian troops were deployed into Crimea. Yesterday, they were deployed there. So everyone's looking at North Korea you know, and, they, and, and, and there could be another battle getting ready to take place, one in which Russia and Iran could be planning against Israel. Listen, Iran could care less about Iraq and about North Korea and Jordan and, and ISIS. All, all uh, Iran wants to do is get rid of Israel, to wipe them off the face of the map, to annihilate them. That's their goal. And now that North Korea and Iran are nuclear nations with crazies governing both nations, I mean, who knows what will happen. It makes no sense why North Korea is making these threats except to get the world's attention on, on Korea so that Iran can take care of Israel. Now, I have to say this. I'm glad that Donald Trump is our president right now. And I'll tell you why. Because none of these other world leaders can figure him out. I mean, the Ayatollahs, Putin, Kim Jong-un, Kim, that guy... Call him Kim for short. <laughs> but they don't know what Trump's going to do. I mean, we have a hard time figuring it out for ourselves, and he's our president. But here's the good thing. Donald Trump has put into leadership the generals that can handle these current threats, and he listens to them. I mean, that's why he put these guys into this place, because he recognized that he doesn't have the knowledge that these guys do. But let me tell you, there's something even far greater than having right generals in the right place. According to CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network, weekly Bible study classes are being held at the White House. And some Trump administration officials, including Vice President Pence, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, join when they are in town. To me, that is awesome. When was the last time you heard of Bible studies being done in the White House? I mean, why is that so awesome? Why? Because the battle is won on our knees. They're seeking the Lord first in these things. So then what is our responsibility as Christians when it comes to all these things going on within our government and, and those things? It's to do the same thing. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, 
intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We need to be praying for them. But more than that, our church, our families, we've got friends and family, brothers and sisters in Christ in the military that could very well be soon engaging in all-out war. And here's what I pray. I, protect, I pray protection of every man and woman in the military. But more than that, I, I pray that God blesses all of our warriors. I pray that God blesses them like God blessed David and Joshua and Caleb. And that the Lord goes before them in battle, if battle is what is coming, and that it would be swift and it would be victorious. Why is that? Well, because we need to understand that, that war is not murder. War is killing. God says do not murder. That God has even sanctioned war. He even talked about how our one nation and judgment can bring about other nations that do wickedness. My point is this. We are living in dangerous times. Times These are times when you need to make sure that you know that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And more than ever, it's, it, you, we, it's time for you to make sure that you know your Bible. War is coming. I don't know when or where, but Jesus said they're going to come. So we need to be Ready. Not scared, not frightened, but ready. And as Paul says here in verse 1, to be ready for every good work. We need to make sure that our family and our, and our friends are loved on and that they know Jesus. And we need to pray for our country and seek the Lord completely in making the right decisions. Because if, if Kim Moon John decides to launch a nuke that's going to hit, you know, L.A. or San Francisco in 30 minutes... I would say a whole culture of people, liberals and conservatives alike, that don't know the Lord, they're going to be looking for answers very, very quickly about God, about heaven, about protection. And I would say only a culture that is dependent upon God and understand what, what to do would survive. And we need to be praying for our leaders, praying for wisdom and for us to conduct ourselves in a worthy manner that God might see fit in His grace and in His mercy to put an end to this conflict with North Korea and Iran, and to give us a little more time that we might be able to tell every man, woman, boy, and girl about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That He died on the cross, rose again from the dead to give us salvation. Folks, we're living in amazing days. Look up because our redemption is drawing near. Now this brings us to point number two. How to live godly in an ungodly world when it comes to, to the people around us. Look at verse two what Paul says. He says we're to speak evil of no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now lately we've been seeing quite the opposite when it comes to this presidency and people in politics. There's a lot of speaking evil back and forth going, you know, it seems never ending, at all time high. Everyone's speaking evil of someone else. But that's not to be the case for us as believers. We're told to, to speak evil of no one. Now that doesn't mean we're not to speak the truth. We're to speak the truth in love, but we're not to put someone down in a condemning way. I like the story that Pastor John Corson tells of when he walked into the YMCA and he says, I, I saw a young guy I recognized as Marty. He's a high school student from Applegate dribbling a basketball on the gym floor. As he took a shot from half court, the ball went up in the air and missed everything. Way to go. Nice shot, I kidded. He got the ball, took a hook shot and missed again. Keep it up, buddy. Looking good, I jeered. But as I walked closer, I realized it wasn't Marty at all. Some high school kid was shooting hoops, and here I was just railing on him. 
How I wish I'd read this verse before I went to the YMCA that day. Speak evil of no one. It means we're not to, to slander one another. It means we're not to, to repeat gossip. It's been said, you can't believe everything you hear today, but you can repeat it. <laughs> That's what Paul is talking about here. Many evil reports were being passed around about Paul, about these things. And, and that happens today. They're passed around from one person to the next. Well, even any, any shred of evidence that the report is true. So Paul is warning against spreading lies with evil intent and starting fights. Listen, gossip, it, it, it topples governments, it splits churches, it, it wreck, wrecks marriages, it ruins careers, destroys reputations, causes nightmare, it brings suspicion, it generates grief. Even the name sounds evil, it kind of got a hiss to it, gossip, you know, the, the, the devil. I mean, if you ever had someone gossip about you, tell lies about you, you know how painful it could be. And sometimes it's just a little bit of truth with a lot of lies added. The media, man, they're experts at it. They'll take a shred of truth in an article and then they just totally fill it with lies. Proverbs 20 verse 19 tells us, a gossip goes around telling secrets, so don't hang around with chatterers. Do you know people who go around telling secrets? It's gossip. It's wrong. And if somehow... And our mentality, we, we, we rationalize it. We share it in acceptable ways. Well, have you heard, or, or did you know, or I don't believe it's true, but, or I wouldn't tell you this, but, but I know it won't go any further. There's a more spiritual version than then. I'm only telling you this so you can pray. So it's gossip. I, I found a, a wise teacher sent a note home to all parents on the first day of school, and it read this. If you promise not to believe everything your child says happens at school, I'll promise not to believe everything your child says happens at home. <laughs> Here's a great principle you, you might apply for those areas you think might be gossip. It's an acronym for the word think. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? You say, well, I live, if I live by that principle, I'd hardly say a thing at all. Absolutely. Good. See, Paul says, we're not to engage in evil speaking, gossiping, but rather in verse 2, we're to be peaceable, gentle, showing humility to all men. See, now we're moving away from, from talking about civil authorities to the average unbelieving citizen. And he says, even of the unbelievers, don't you speak evil of them. He says, even if those unbelievers are among you are contentious, you are to be peaceable. Even if these unbelievers are harsh, he says, you're to be gentle. Even if these unbelievers are, are full of pride, you're to act in humility, showing all humility to all men. And then on top of all of that, Paul reminds us of how we were before we got saved. Look at verse 3. He says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul is saying, think about where you came from, where I came from. Now, he's not saying we all committed these sins listed here, but rather that before salvation, every life is characterized by such sins. See, Paul is saying when it comes to how we treat one another, Think about where you were before you came to Christ. When it comes to how you treat an unbeliever, think about where you were when you were unsaved. 
If it weren't for God's grace and mercy towards us, we would all be wicked. I mean, that sobering truth should make believers humble in dealing with the unsaved, even those who are grossly immoral and ungodly. Here's my point. God wants us to look at people from the same vantage point He looks at people, that we're all sinners in need of salvation. And He has the hope for mankind. And when it comes to to dealing with non-believers, I mean, think about this. How do you expect them to act? They're going to act like non-believers. I've had people come up to me before in the past and, and, and they'll tell me, well, we had this family gathering together and I got around some family and they, and they said some, some horrible things to me. And it's some mean things. And I'll ask them, well, are they saved? Do they know Jesus? And they say no. And I say, well, how do you expect them to act? What do you think they're going to say? I mean, they're a non-believer. What amazes me is that unbelievers aren't worse than they are. You should expect them to act the way that they do. But the bottom line is if man and woman are to change, they must be changed by an encounter with the living God, Jesus Christ. And the way that, that we can help the people come around, uh, people come, that are around us is come to Christ is by living that godly life ourselves. A peaceable life, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now this brings us to our third point in the way we are to live godly in an ungodly world when it comes to our God. See, Paul is saying, don't forget where you came from. If you want to live godly in an ungodly world, then don't forget the grace that God has shown you. Don't forget that God saved you, that God saved me. Do you ever really think about that? That out of all the billions of people in this world, God looked at you and saved you. God saved me. Or out of all the billions of people in the world that are not going to be saved, God says, I'm choosing you. I want you to be saved. Now I want to finish up these remaining verses here by showing us three things. I'm going to give you three more points on top of our three points that I already gave you. It goes in with our first, our third point, three more points. What God saved us from, why God saved us, and how God saved us. I'll put that up on the screen so we can make it clear. Number one, what God saved us from. Go back to verse three for a moment. Again, Paul says, We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. First of all, God saved us from our foolishness, he says right there. The Bible says in Psalm 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God saved us from us foolishly saying there is no God. He opened up our eyes so we could see that there is a God who loves us. Number two, God saved us from our disobedience. We were disobedient and not listening to or responding to the voice of God, rebelling against his authority, arguing with his commandments. Number three, God saved us from being deceived. One of the cruelest tricks that Satan has in his arsenal is to, is to make us think before we come to Christ that, that we're okay, that you and I are doing fine, that you're wrong, uh, you're wrong, but you, but you think you're right. You're dead, but, but you think you're alive. You're a slave to sin, but you think you're free. We were deceived. God saved us from being deceived. Number four, God saved us from serving various lusts and pleasures. I mean, before we were saved, we had a lust for power, a lust for pleasure. We were slaves to our own desires. God saved us from that. Number five, God saved us from living in malice and envy. Oh, you know, we were looking at people. Well, how come they got the new car? How come they got this? How come the, man, I want that. And we had this, 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 this envy and, and, and malice towards one another. God saved us from that. And finally, number six, Paul says, God saved us from being hateful and hating one another. 
Are not those six things that God saved us from a perfect picture of the unsaved world that we see today? There's foolishness and disobedience and, and deception and they're serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And those are things that God has saved us from. Why on earth would we ever want to go back to those things again? Now, number two in my second set of points. Why God saved us. Look at verse four. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Why did God save us? Because of the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man. It's his kindness and his love. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Anything we have, anything we possess of worth are all because of him. His love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace towards us. Number three, how did God save us? Look at verse five again. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now, I know that sometimes we think that there's something within ourselves, some good quality that we have that we think, oh, I'm a pretty good guy. That's why God says, I'm going to save you. You know, that, that God looked at me and said, yeah, Tom, he's a pretty good guy. I think I'm going to save him. Not. I have another John Corson story. This is a good one. He tells of the time when after speaking at a men's retreat one weekend, he says he was driving to the airport feeling pleased with how well it seemed to go. He said to himself, what a blessing. Maybe I should do more of this type of retreat. I wonder what's ahead for me. He says that thought had no sooner entered his mind than a sign on the roadside caught his eye. In better days, it had read, world's biggest jerky ahead. Now, however, the why having fallen off read, world's biggest jerk ahead. And all John could say was, I get the message, Lord. Oh, that we would always keep in mind once we once were and what's we, what we still have a tendency to be. See, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.12, there is none who does good, none who does good, none who does good, no, not one. You know, we know often people think in, in, our, in our culture, in our society, that they get to heaven based off some, you know, uh, merit system. If I do enough deeds, good deeds, then my good's going to outweigh my bad, and, and whammo, I'm in. And you talk to people like that, and, and they, they think, well, the good deeds is going to get them a place in heaven. But again, Paul says here, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. But he saves us how, according to his mercy, he saved us. According to his mercy. Not what I did, but what he did. Not by merit, but by mercy. See, mercy is not getting what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve death. We deserve death on the cross. But God in his mercy saved us by sending Jesus to take that judgment, to take that death upon himself. So why on earth would we lift up anything that we have or done that that makes us think that somehow we have anything to do with it? It's all God. I thank God when we get to heaven, there's going to be no bragging sessions, you know. We might brag about how we got there. I thought about that. I, I got hit by a bus. Hey, I'm here, you know. Uh, I just had cancer. That's all I have. But, you know, what a, what a morbid thing to think about. <laughs> but but I, I love this again. You know, Paul says in verse 5, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Then he goes on, look at this, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because Christ died for us, paid the penalty for our sins, God is prepared to extend mercy to all of us. 
And he's rich in mercy, which means he has plenty of it. Whoever you are, if you don't know Christ, uh, know that you can know him today. He can save you today. He paid the penalty for your sin uh, uh, to give you his righteousness when you come to him in repentance and faith. Now, for us as believers, we still have those, those fleshly tendencies. We have been washed and renewed because of what Jesus did on the cross and taking our place. Again, it was his work that saved us, the work of the cross, the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body. By his stripes, we are healed. The only part that God leaves us up to us is to believe. That's it. In fact, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6 when the people asked Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. There's no work that you can do to save your soul. You can only believe in the work that Jesus has done on your behalf. According to his mercy, he saved us. Believe me, you don't want justice before God. You want mercy. And then on top of all, of all that saving you, he's poured out his Holy Spirit, we read in verse 6, abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, into our lives. Abundantly. Have you ever noticed that, that, that God does everything in an abundance, in surplus? He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think. God's abundant grace. And that brings us to our final Paul, point Paul makes in verse 7. How did God save us? By grace. Look at verse 7. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We know that word justified means just as if I've not sinned. And, and what's the justifying agent of God? It's His grace. And where do, we, where do we receive that grace? It's through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, all of my sins were placed upon Him. And He paid for them all upon the cross, being crucified for my transgressions and raised for my justification. And we can't even begin to tap into the enormous implications of that five little five-letter word there, grace. The, the, the scandal of grace that we sing, what, what Jesus Christ has done for us, it's a scandal that, that someone would do that for us. The grace of God means, means, the, means salvation, it means justification, it means sanctification and growth for the believer. And through this justification before God, by grace, we become heirs of God and join heirs with Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here, what a blessed position we have in Christ I mean, this wonderful salvation ought to motivate us to be better citizens, to reach the lost around us and, and letting them see that we live godly lives so that they'll want to know Him. And then Paul finally ends in verse 7 that God saved us so that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I like that. God saved us to give us hope. Apart from Christ right now, man, we're living in a pretty hopeless society. An ungodly world. But we're in Christ. And in Christ, no matter what happens here on earth, we have hope. The hope of eternal life. Now the basis of this hope is found in Jesus' words in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Eternal life. That same hope is found in John 11.25 when Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That same hope is found in 1 John 5.11 and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. It's a hope of eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in saving us. 
That means we're going to spend eternity with our God and Savior. There'll be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more threat of wars, rumors of wars. God will wipe away every tear. The former things shall pass away. So, as we wait for that day, as we wait for heaven, hoping for heaven, we're to live godly in an ungodly world by being good citizens, praying for our country and the leadership, being kind one to another, being kind to those that are ungodly, not speaking evil, but remembering where we came from and by trusting in the God who saved us. He saved us from ourselves. He saved us from hell. saved us a place for us in eternity with Him in heaven. I can't wait. Now, maybe you're here this morning, you've joined us, and you're not saved. Now, I would say, after looking at all that God has done for you, why would you wait any longer? I mean, after looking at what's going on in the world, looking at what God has done for you, knowing there's not much time left, I would say, man, you need to get life, your life right with Christ today, this morning, right now. God loves you enough to send His only Son to die for you upon that cross. And you just turn from your sin and turn to Him. Believe in what He's done for you. You can be saved this morning. See, as a Christian, we may not know what tomorrow holds, but we definitely know who holds our tomorrows. And it's Jesus Christ. And He died on the cross and rose again from the dead to give us our salvation. And if you want to be saved this morning, if you want to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you want your sin forgiven and to be born again and to know if something were to happen and you would die today, that you would be in heaven, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time today. Lord, we thank you for your word because you showed to us, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, how to live godly lives in this ungodly world. And I pray you help us to take these principles and apply them to our lives, Lord, that we might serve you better, Lord, and be that better witness to this world around us. Lord, we do pray for our country. We pray for the leadership in our country. We pray for our president, that he would seek first you, Lord, in your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, he would seek you and how to deal with the conflicts that he has to face on a daily basis. Lord, that you would give our generals and our leaders and those in authority wisdom in making the decisions that's what's best for our country and we as a people. And Lord, that we as a people, Lord, as believers, we would continue to pray for our nation and for what's going on. And Lord, that we would uh, continue to pray for those that don't know you, Lord, that we would be a light to this ungodly world. And through the events that are happening in our world today, Lord, that we might give people the hope that we have, the hope of eternal life. And finally, Lord, I pray, we pray, Lord, if there's anybody here that is yet to give their life to you, to surrender their hearts to you, to be born again. Lord, they're still dead in their sin, but they don't need to be, Father. And I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, that they would see their need for you, and they would stop this morning and turn their lives over to you, surrender their hearts to you that they would ask for that forgiveness of their sin and be born again this morning. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning? You want to give your life to Jesus Christ. You want your sin forgiven. You want to be born again. You want to know if you were to die today, you would go to heaven. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you? God bless you. Anybody else? This is just between you and the Lord. You want to be born again today? Anybody else? Just raise your hand so I could pray for you. This is just between you and the Lord. Maybe you've given your life to the Lord at one point and you've walked away from the Lord. And you're not really living for Him and you recognize that and you've gone back into some of the things that we looked at this morning. But you want to rededicate your life to Jesus today. You want to to rededicate your life to serving Him and loving Him, recognizing the time started. If that's your 
decision this morning. Would you raise your hand this morning so I could pray for you as well? Father, we thank you. Oh, God bless you over there in the corner. I almost missed you there. God bless you. Father, we thank you for those that have raised to rededicate their life to you and give their life to you. We pray, Father, that, uh, Lord, uh, you would move mightily in their lives and in their hearts, Lord, as they've, they've made this decision to rededicate their lives to you. Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For those of you who raised